This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we continue our journey through the Gospel of Matthew and into the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. That is correct. And we made promises, Brent. We got to keep them. So we got to pick up right where we left off. Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. I don't have any notes until later, so we're just going to read the passage and interact with the ideas. How about that? This will be uh, Bama Live. <laughs> yeah. Bema uh, raw. <laughs> Bema raw. I like that. All right. Go ahead. Take it away, Mr. Billings. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. All right. Let's stop right there. Let's okay. stop you mid-sentence. Right at a hyphen. Um, Jesus heard that John had been in prison. He withdrew to Galilee. The language in the English has always suggested that. He hears that John is murdered. And then he, in fact, in other, um, in other gospels, I think it's Luke, uh, Jesus has told like, Herod's looking for you and you need to leave. And, um, so a lot of times when you, he withdrew to Galilee makes you feel like, oh, he's going away. But actually what he's withdrawing from is what he's currently doing in his ministry. Like he's withdrawing from his current agenda to go pick up a new agenda in response to what's just happened to John the Baptist, and I don't know at what point in session three, Brent, it's going to be a good time for me to talk about this. I believe John the Baptist was Jesus's rabbi. We're going to get more and more pieces of that. I've hinted at it already, I believe, in one of our earlier podcasts. Um, I don't have like enough pieces at this point to make that case, but as we pick up more pieces, you're going to hear me keep referencing that. A lot of people, the pushback is going to be, how can John the Baptist be Jesus's rabbi if uh, Jesus is only six months his um, what am I trying to say here? Not his elder. Junior. His junior. If John the Baptist is only six months older than Jesus, how, how, like that's so odd. And it would be very odd. That would not be the typical case. But Jesus coming from a, um, what's going to be a birth story that is going to be very, people are going to be skeptical of. His background isn't going to be a background of, they're not going to accept his his birth story. So they're, they're wondering who is your real father? That makes him a legitimate, like we used Mumser to speak of Matthew in a poetic sense, but there's going to be a scholar out there. His name is uh, Bruce Chilton. Man, and I wish I knew which book it would be. Rabbi Jesus. See if you can find a book by Chilton that we can link. Um, and he, he definitely is a progressive scholar. He's going to lean liberal, but his take on, on Jesus is he believes Jesus was a Mumser. Um, which wouldn't have had a large impact on Jesus's life in the Galilee. But one of the impacts would have been um, that Jesus as a mumser, a rabbi would never have taken Jesus under his wing. Like Jesus could have never been trained under a rabbi. So it makes sense that you have this John the Baptist character that we talked about last week, this kind of rogue priest, this guy who's trained by the Essenes that says, hey, cuz, I didn't say it that way. Hey, cousin, I know that you can never get trained. And how about you come under my wing? Because the way that Jesus and John interact in almost every story that we have is the way that a rabbi and a disciple would interact. The way that Jesus talks about John, the way that Jesus honors John, the way that Jesus will even mimic John when he takes up his rabbi's message. Um, I should say that that was my my rabbi's opinion, and that's what Ray handed me, uh, and I agree. That's how I should actually. It's not like I've come to this discovery on my own. Um, it's what I was taught, and I, I happen to agree. I think John the Baptist was Jesus's 
you can call it informal. There are no there are no formal capital R rabbis in this day. That won't come until after the destruction of the temple. Jesus Jesus is under John the Baptist as his informal teacher. And so what happens is when John, when Jesus hears that John his rabbi has been um, arrested, correct? Let's see here, put in prison. He withdraws from his current agenda to go set up shop. Like I've heard preachers say, Jesus, I think I might even mention this in the last podcast or two podcasts ago or something like that. Uh, I've heard preachers say that Jesus went and like he was trying to get away from Herod Antipas because it was dangerous. He goes and he sets up shop like right under, remember Tiberius, we showed the map of the towns of Galilee. Tiberius was right on the sea there. And Capernaum was how far away, Brent? A couple blocks, basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Like, if you remember that photograph from the top of the mountain, Tiberius was right over our right shoulder. And Capernaum is right. It's not even all the way to the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. It's on the same side of the sea. So you're uh, you're literally a 10, 15-minute drive by car from Tiberius to Capernaum today. A 40-minute walk, or I don't know what it would be, but you, you know, an hour walk. You are right underneath his nose. So Jesus goes, he hears that his rabbi's been arrested, and he goes and he sets up shop right underneath Herod's nose. Um, and that's that's the withdrawing, quote unquote, that he's doing. He is responding not with running away, but with a ton of chutzpah. Or as it says in the Gospel of Luke, you go tell Herod that fox that I will do everything I want to do, and it will take me three days to reach my goal. Like Jesus is not like, oh no, it's getting dangerous. I'm going to pull out. Nope. Jesus is going, I'm going all in. Um, you've arrested my rabbi. Here, here it comes. So he's bringing kingdom. Not in a violent sense, but he's bringing kingdom. Forcefully advancing, we might even read in another passage. Uh, okay, so leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. All right, so uh, Matthew gives us a little text. Remember, we've been talking about text to context. He gives us a little remez. And this one will be a little bit easier in some of the other remezes that Matthew's been working with that we've been trying to point out. This is a little bit harder to get our head around. This is going to be a little bit easier. This quote comes straight out of Isaiah chapter 9. And uh, just listen to the context. So, so when a Jewish author or a Jewish rabbi quotes a piece of text, they're not just quoting the exact verses that they quote. They're quoting the verses because they understand that their audience has the text what, Brent? Memorized. They have the text memorized. So when they quote a little piece, they know that their audience understands the big piece. Like they know the context in which that quotation is coming out of. So when a, it's called a remez. When a rabbi quotes that, when a teacher or a gospel writer, Matthew in this case, quotes that text, he knows that his Jewish audience goes, oh, well, I know exactly what Isaiah 9's about. Oh, I get what Matthew's saying. So how about you read, um, you've got Isaiah 9, 1b through like chapters or verse 7, I think you have. Chapter 7. Chapter 7. Read Ooh. it all. No. Go ahead. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. 
The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Okay, so the original readers are going to hear this passage quoted and go, oh yeah, I know about that. That's that's when Isaiah was talking about how God humbled this land. Like Jesus just moved to Capernaum into the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. And Matthew quotes this passage where this same region has had to learn lessons from the past, but now there's a new, in Isaiah, there's a new day dawning. So listen to this. Keep reading this. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Okay, so when Isaiah originally quotes this, he's not thinking about Jesus. Like, we've done that chat before. Session two, I even think maybe even in session three we've touched on it. Like, when Isaiah writes that, he's not thinking, unto us a child is born, thinking about Jesus later. He is saying, Isaiah is saying, listen, we have had to learn a lesson here in Naphtali and Zebulun, this territory, but a new day is dawning, and we have a new king and a new ruler on the scene and a new opportunity today to be everything that God's called us to be. And that that's Isaiah's message. Like we have we have a new day dawning. And now Matthew quotes it in order to send that exact same message into the story here. Jesus arrives in this land. And Matthew says, remember that passage way back when that's it's happening all over again. Like we have a new day dawning and a new opportunity to be everything that God's called us to be. And of course, that last verse you read there was Jesus takes up John the Baptist's mantle, his rabbi's message, and he preaches it verbatim. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or the kingdom of heaven is near. And Jesus comes saying, listen, the kingdom is here. The kingdom is coming. My rabbi just got arrested. I got news for you. The kingdom, this new day... We, we said the gospel was a pronouncement of a what? Of a new king and a new kingdom. There's a new king and a new kingdom. And Jesus comes pronouncing a new euangelion. He says, there's a new day on your doorstep. And I'm here to announce what this new day looks like. All right. Take us back to Matthew, Brent. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Okay, we've done that chat before. I think you're going to link uh, a podcast, was it 74, episode 74? Yep. Where we talked about synagogue and the Jewish school system. And we talked about what it meant to follow a rabbi and how there were these three stages, Bet Sefer and Bet Midrash and Bet Talmud. And there were these stages of Jewish schooling where eventually what you were working towards was a time when a rabbi would look at you and say, come follow me. You would apply to follow a rabbi. A rabbi would say, come follow me. You have what it takes. But if at any point during this um, this process, this Jewish educational process, if at any point it just became evident that you weren't going to pass mustard, you weren't going to be able to make it in this system, you would get told to what, Brent? 
Uh, just uh, go back and work in your father's business. That's right. Your dad has a has a trade. Your dad go home and ply your father's trade. And it's what are we talking about here? Like some people. How many people, Brent? The vast majority. Yeah. And by that, we're looking like easily 99% of the population here. At some point in this process, get told, hey, you love God, you love Torah, that's obvious, but it's time to go home and join your father and ply his trade. And that's what we see here. Jesus goes out walking on the beach, and we read that Peter and Andrew are fishing. They've gone home. And if they're fishing on their own, it's a good... It's a good uh, there's a safe assumption that they're probably older than 13 years old. They've been bar mitzvahed. They're out on their own working their dad's profession. Um, but that they're still probably not very old at all. And we've done that chat already before as well. And we might touch on it some more by the time we're done. But go ahead and keep reading this next little subparagraph. And we'll see what comes up here. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Okay, in this case, they're in the they're in the boat with who, Brent? With their father. Okay, with their father. Now, this means, I mean, we can't say this for absolute certainty, but cultural context would imply here, if they're in the boat fishing with their father, they probably have not been bar mitzvahed yet. They, they have not hit 13. They have not been turned over to just work the father's, apply the father's trade as an adult on their own. So James and John could be, well, I don't know, 12, 13, 11. I, I don't know. The The context here is so helpful for me to start to get my head in the right kind of space and have the right kind of mental pictures here. But Jesus goes walking out on the beach and he's been probably watching these guys. It's probably not the first time they've met Jesus. It is very, very likely that James and John, Peter and Andrew, and some of these other guys that will end up being called to be disciples have probably been around Jesus, probably sat at his feet, learned his teaching, maybe at a synagogue or in Capernaum. Like this is not the first time they're probably seeing Jesus. And this is not the first time that Jesus has probably seen them. He's probably seen in them a little spark that he wants to. And so he comes to them and says, Lechacharai in the Hebrew, come follow me. And and they drop everything to follow him. They're getting a second chance at this whole rabbinical thing. And and if what Chilton says is true, this starts to make sense or or maybe have a different kind of clarity. Because if Jesus is a mumser, he's like a ragamuffin, he's like a ragtag rabbi, kind of outcast, like not following the rules, kind of a rogue rabbi teacher f- calling these like rogue dropout students like, hey. I've seen God working in you. How about you come follow me? And that starts to give me a little bit of clarity. And we'll even see later as we study the scriptures, it's a really good possibility. A lot of these guys are probably actually distant cousins, probably second cousins or maybe even first cousins to Jesus. So a lot of this is a family, you could almost say a family business, a family rabbinical business like John the Baptist discipling his cousin Jesus, Jesus now calling some of his cousins from Bethsaida, uh, we'll we'll get to some of that stuff later, but that's who these guys are, and that's why they drop everything to follow him. Okay. Uh, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. All right. Now, we're really used to paragraphs like this, and so we don't even realize anything that jumps out to us as we read them. 
because of that lullaby effect that Foreman has talked about with the Old Testament so much. Like we're so used to these stories about, oh, these people came and Jesus did all these miracles as Christians that we we don't even catch like the weight of what was just said. So we're told that Jesus is going about the land doing this thing, preaching this message, uh, healing people that have diseases. But the who is striking because what did we say, Brent, was Matthew's agenda? Uh, the outcast. The outcast and the mumser. And we saw that in the genealogy to start. We saw it in the birth narratives, as he's compared to Herod, or in Luke, he's compared to Caesar, but let's stay with Matthew and his agenda. Um, he's compared to Herod the Great. You could even pull it through some of the other things, like even the uh, baptisms or the temptation story. You might have to work a little bit harder to do that. But this is a theme that's running that's running through here, this, this idea that Jesus himself uh, is culturally seen or maybe even... Um, legitimately seen as a, as a mumser, a mamser. But so, what is it that you, go ahead. Well, okay. So, so he mentioned Syria. Yes. Kind of towards the beginning of the paragraph. News about him spread all over Syria. People brought to him all these people. Right. Is, is that Syria the modern Syria that we know? Yeah, in essence. More I mean, or less. Yeah, more or less. It's that direction. So Syria would be like everything north of the upper Galilee. Um, so everything north, there's going to be a Sea of Galilee region, the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, um, those regions up there. And then north of that's going to be a region of Syria. So why is Syria separated from the listing of the other places? Well, it's interesting. I've wrestled with that. I don't actually have a good answer for that because it, the way it words it, like news about him spread throughout all of Syria, like news about him is going north. And if I had to guess, I would actually say there's probably something in the text, um, that I just haven't thought of yet. There's some reference to word going north, the light. Uh, it's just talked about uh, Isaiah 9 and um, uh, the word of the, uh, excuse me, I'm totally, I don't know why I'm blanking on this, but a, a light being donned, um, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. There probably is a textual reference somewhere to the word going north or the light shining into the north, or that would be my guess, just a pure guess. But based on what I've learned about what my gospels are doing, that would, because it is right. You've noticed something like we used to do in session one. Like, what are the problems? What's the thing that stands out to you? And this weird reference to Syria, it's not just like news about him spread throughout the land. It's news about him spread throughout Syria, a very specific mention. So there must be something out there. But that same idea is actually something that shows up throughout this paragraph, and that's the who is mentioned. So if we look at this, uh, what you read us, Brent, we have um, large crowds from the Galilee. Okay, that would be expected because we looked at the map. Who's the Galilee going to be? Those are the religious people. Okay, the triangle we said, right? So I got I got people from the triangle, the religious Jews. You'd expect them to come out and want to hear a rabbi. You'd expect them to bring their lepers or their sick or their people that are needing uh, healing. Okay. But then the Decapolis, what was that, Brent? Those are the pagans. Those are the pagans. That was on the other side of the lake. I told you that those people like never, what are they doing over here? Like this is very intentional on Matthew's part because of his agenda. Uh, how about Jerusalem? Okay. Who who might be in Jerusalem? More religious people, the priests okay. specifically. We, even, we might have like a Sadducees. Uh, how about Judea? Uh, that's just the southern portion of Israel, right? Southern so portion of Israel. More, more religious people, but Herodians, they, maybe. Herodians, yeah. And and we haven't pulled this apart a lot, but Ju- Judea and Galilee despised each other. They would have referenced each other by spitting on the ground. Like they had this disdain, Galilee being the rough redneck 
charismatic fringe fanatics and Judea being the academic trained ivory tower type mindsets. So you've got like you literally is this, have is this everybody. dating all the way back to when the kingdom split? Uh, this would be, you know, I don't, I've never even done any study to see if there's any roots there. Not so much. This would be more tied to the return from Babylonian captivity and two different kinds of worldviews. So when they return from Babylon, you have that worldview that says, I want to return and rebuild. And I'm kind of okay with Persia and I'm kind of okay with, it's that Herodian mentality. And then you've got another mentality that says, no, 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 we are setting ourselves apart and we're doing it now. And we go up North to kind of set up shop in the corner. Um, not corner corner, not like Essene corner, but cultural corner. So then what is the region across the Jordan? What is that referring to? So that region uh, beyond the Jordan can be, uh, people might argue it might be a couple of different things. It's usually the area, because across the Jordan is the Decapolis. And that Decapolis is going to go all the way down to what is Jordan today, modern day Jordan. So as far as across the Jordan, Decapolis is most of it. So the region across the Jordan is usually the north, like across the Jordan, but north of the Decapolis. So the Decapolis is more like Susita, straight east, but everything kind of northeast of the Sea of Galilee is the region beyond the Jordan. If you remember, John the Baptist was baptizing in Bethany beyond the Jordan. And that reference would be north of the Sea of Galilee. Um or Bethabara, I think the King James even said, but that's all that's all the region across the Jordan. So in a sense, you might even be able to say the zealots. I'm not sure if that's what's math, what Matthew is referencing, but that is the region that Gamla sits in. Uh, but any at any rate, you look at this paragraph and you go, whoa, this is a mishmash group of people. Like these are groups of people that do not hang out together. They do not attend the same barbecues. And Matthew's not essentially saying that they are all at the same barbecue, but he is saying that they're all coming to Jesus. They are all interacting with this new kingdom pronouncement. And he's wanting you to see this isn't just one group of people. This isn't just the religious folks that this is about. And it's not just the religious folks that Jesus is working with. This is having an impact on everyone. All right. It's probably a good way to segue into the next part. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds. Okay, so there you go. Let's just stop right there. When Jesus saw which crowds, Brent? The people from the Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan. Okay, if Matthew just went out of his way to point out the diversity of the crowd, and his next statement is when Jesus saw this. I'm I'm curious, how do you think Jesus' disciples felt about this crowd? Probably fairly uncomfortable. Fairly uncomfortable. Like some of them, they were like, oh, great. Like, uh, you know, Jews from the Galilee. They're probably like, sweet. But then the Decapolis showed up and they were like, "Mm, no, thanks. And Judeans showed up and they were like, well, that's okay, but I really don't like hanging out with Judeans. But then, I don't know, the region beyond the Jordan. And this is tricky. This is tricky. What if Sadducees showed up? What are they like? They're somewhat uncomfortable. So Jesus sees this. Go ahead. Tell me what he does. He went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, let's. so he sees this crowd, and there's, if you remember our map, I called it Aramos Tapos. Those are those two hills there. And we can't say definitively that that's where it's at, but it is one of the most likely places that we talked about in that podcast. So he goes up on this mountain, this small little hill. He goes up on this um, Aramos Tapos, a certain place, and he, he calls his, so he sees the crowds, 
And in response to what the kingdom of God is doing, in response to this kingdom of heaven reaching all these different people, Jesus goes up and he sits down and he calls his disciples to him. So his audience, according to the text, is specifically his disciples. It's not necessarily the whole crowds, although Matthew has wanted to point out the crowds. It's not a massive group of people for the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus responding to this massive group of people by calling his disciples to him and saying, hey, hey, come here, just sit down. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about kingdom. And this is, in Matthew's version, in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew's record, kind of the beginning of Jesus's teaching ministry. These are the first words that kind of come out of his mouth. Now, most scholars have pointed out this, we can be almost like 90% positive. This sermon was not given like this. Like Jesus did not sit on a mountain and give the entire Sermon on the Mount in one conversation. Matthew is probably pulling, this is a typical Eastern tool that a a Jewish author to a Jewish audience is going to be very familiar with. He's going to take lots of Jesus's teachings and he's going to weave them together in his gospel to make it sound like one teaching that represents what Jesus's whole teaching ministry was about. This is Matthew's record of, if you want to know what my rabbi's body of work was about, like you've been working with me long enough that Brent, if you were back in Kansas or your family's from Kansas, right? Yep. Let's say you're back in Kansas. And somebody was like, so tell me about this Marty guy. Tell me about, uh, tell me about what he teaches. Like you could talk about my body of work. Like you could say, this is Marty's narrative. This is his agenda. This is Matthew's version of, this is what my Jesus taught. I'm going to give you the opening sermon that's going to define the teaching of this Jesus. And in typical rabbinical fashion, a rabbi's first lesson to his disciples would often be a list, almost like Ten Commandments, a list of, here's the basic tenets of my theology. Not systematic theology, but here are the basic principles that I believe guide the work that we're called to. And so Jesus starts with the list of Beatitudes. So go ahead and go back to that first beatitude and, and read us this list here. And I just want to call to attention, like, Jesus' ministry is three years long. He's got a lot of material. He's probably he going over the same material multiple times in multiple scenarios. And like we know from the end of the book of John, uh, if everything was written down, there wouldn't be enough room for all the books. So right. Matthew has a lot of source material to pull from correct, and package it together in this nice little... You know, three chapter thing that gives you a pretty good idea of everything that Jesus is about. Right. And you could really look at the rest of the Gospel of Matthew and say everything we're going to read and everything we're going to encounter really fits under the umbrella that would be the Sermon on the Mount. So it really does work that way, exactly like you're talking about. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All right, let's go ahead ahead and uh, stop there for now. Uh, I mean, I've heard a lot of sermons on the Beatitudes, and a lot of them uh, talk about the Beatitudes as like this list of things that Jesus need to like aspire to. Um, Jesus followers, we like we need to we need to try to be meek, and we need to try to and and that works with maybe a few of the things, but but there's some problems with that. The first one is this is the idea of blessed, like blessed be. The word there means happy. The problem is is on a, in our American culture, 
um, probably not a great translation. We probably don't make the right correlations to that good translation. So blessed, I've always felt like a better translation for us to get our head around what's being said here is not happy as in like American dream or consumeristic happiness, but God's favor. Like you find yourself in God's favor. Blessed be God's favor is on those who. Um, and if that, if this is a list of things that we're supposed to aspire to, then what this becomes is God's favor rests on somebody else. Like when I'm meek, that's when, that's when God's favor will rest on me. When I finally uh, am pure of heart, that's when God's favor will rest on me. When I'm finally uh, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, that's when God's favor will, will rest on me. When I finally am blank, then I will find the blessing of God. But not only does this run counter to everything else that Jesus is going to teach us, um, but the reasoning doesn't work with all the statements. Like consider the term poor in spirit. Does that sound like a, Brent, does poor in spirit sound like a desirable condition to find yourself in? Not particularly. Or how about mourning? I mean, there's a time and place for it, I suppose. Right. But what you want to pray for or aspire to? Yeah, not not typically. Not typically. Like, is Jesus really telling us, like, what we're supposed to do is pursue a state of mourning? Because that would be kind of weird and it would seem just not fit some of the other stuff we hear. Yeah, but we should hunger and thirst for righteousness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, there's there's some of these things. So, um, like, those first, the first half of this list are really hard to make that whole reasoning work with. Poor in spirit, mourning, and meek. Uh, the word meek is um, a word that speaks of somebody who has the ability to stand up, has the ability to make a move and chooses not to, puts their power under restraint voluntarily, typically. That, that's meek. Sometimes it can even be used of oppressed peoples. Like there are people that have power, but that power has been oppressed and pushed down and marginalized. That's meek. Um, by the way, a great reference that we will link in the show notes, uh, Dallas Willard. Divine Conspiracy, basically a big, huge book, but not a not a hard read, not a difficult read. Um, it is a, a whole book on the Sermon on the Mount. He basically will walk through the Sermon on the Mount. Unbelievable source. Actually, better than my podcast. Just read that book and fantastic. Really, really good. <laughs> come back next episode. And then come back when we're done. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's really, really good. So I really uh, uh, recommend it. But he he suggests that the Beatitudes are, in fact, not a list of things to aspire to, but pronouncements of God's blessing on all the people that the world thinks are missing out. I mean, just consider like our knee-jerk reactions. If you're poor in spirit, what does poor in spirit, what does that just mean, Brent? If you're poor in spirit, it means you are uh, depressed, maybe. I mean, or yeah, just, sure. You but just... you are you are lacking in spirit. Yeah, like, spirit is something we want. And we're poor in it, so we don't have it. So we're lacking in spirit. Um, Or mourning. Uh, We would typically say, like, if somebody were mourning, our knee-jerk reaction is to go, oh, man, they're in a tough place. Uh, But maybe when they stop mourning, they'll find God again. And instead, Jesus Jesus has this list of pronouncements that God is in that place. God's favor is already on that person. Not when they finally—God's favor is on the poor in spirit. Not when they get spirit, not when they figure it out and become not poor in spirit. God's favor is on the poor in spirit. So in essence, Willard says you could like reread these as something like this. God is for those who are spiritually bankrupt. God's favor is on those who mourn. 
God is for those who are meek. Like this sounds like an intriguing idea, but don't we end up with the same problem on the other side of the Beatitudes? Because you mentioned, well, we should what, Brent? We should hunger and thirst for righteousness. Yeah, and we should be merciful. And we should be pure in heart. Yeah. So I had a, I had a, uh, I don't know, should I call him a, a former student, a good friend of mine, whatever, whatever we would call it, an, a ba- an old Bema listener, Bema 1.0 listener. Uh, his name is uh, Josh Basse, um, fellow uh, Jewish thinker with me. And he, he once wrote me this, uh, this document, sent me a mail and, and said, Hey, I've been studying the Beatitudes. And he made these unbelievable observations. Like the first half of the Beatitudes, it's almost like the first half of the Beatitudes are like internal things that you experience when I'm poor in spirit or when I'm mourning or when I'm meek or if I hunger and thirst. for. Now, you pointed out, like you said, well, we should hunger and thirst for righteousness. But Dallas Willard pointed out, no, 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 no. If I hunger for righteousness, if I thirst for righteousness, it means I what? You're lacking. I don't have it. But then the back half of the list is almost things that we experience when we try to engage the brokenness. So the first half of the Beatitudes is like when we're experiencing the brokenness. And the back half of the Beatitudes is when we try to reach out and minister to the brokenness. But how easy is that, Brent Bellings, when you try to minister to the brokenness? Is that just a fun a fun ride full of wonderful, yeah, wonderfulness? No. Most of the time it... Uh... You know, you have all these grand ideas and then you go out there and it doesn't exactly work out how you dreamed it would. Right. Like showing mercy. Like that's a wonderful spiritual platitude. We should be merciful. Of course we should. But tell me how it felt the last time you were really like you showed mercy. That's hard. Like that is not easy. And some people don't even want mercy. That's right. Uh, and so you, it's, it is difficult to be that. And then how about, tell us, see what's our next one, Brent, after uh, merciful, um, pure in heart. Have you ever tried to be pure in heart? And how does that work in this world? Is that an easy... I remember when we do the Passover meal and we talk about shalom with the egg. And we dip the egg in what, Brent? Salt. Because salt water, salt water yeah. represents what? Uh, the bitterness of sin. The tears, right? Because having pursuing wholeness is going to be hard work. There's going to be tears involved. Pure in heart, that does, that's not full of like rainbows and unicorns and care bear. Like this is... This is tough stuff. Um, let's see here. What about uh, peacemakers? That's a fun position to be in because everybody hates you. Both parties can't figure out why you're not on their side. Like peacemaking, Willard points out, this is not a list of fun places to be, which is why it ends with, blessed are those who are persecuted, persecuted, right? Because you have a front half of the list and you have a back half of the list. By the way, Brent Billings, if I say there's a front half of the list... And a back half of the list. Mm-hmm. What are we smelling? Smells like a chiasm. Smells I like guess. a chiasm to if me. If you can smell a chiasm. Oh, man. And if, if that happens and you have two things sitting at the center of this chiasm, um, obviously the poor in spirit and persecution, they parallel each other. Uh, those who mourn and peacemakers parallel each other. The meek and the pure in heart par- parallel each other. And the two in the center become hungering and thirsting for righteousness and mercy. And if it's true that this is, in fact, chiastic, then Jesus's point of his list of Beatitudes is, if you truly hunger and thirst for righteousness, I'll tell you the way to experience righteousness is to be merciful. A true hunger and thirst for righteousness done correctly will lead you to mercy. Now, we've said the word for righteousness is what, Brent? Uh, Zedekah. Zedekah. 
Now, Zadeka can be translated a lot of things. But what have we talked about it meaning? Like benevolence or, yeah. or, you know, taking care of the poor. Absolutely. Generosity. So wouldn't it make sense that this teaching would be, you want to experience righteousness. Quit trying to be a great rule follower. Now, now, what did I say set up this teaching, Brent? What did I say Jesus saw that led him to do this? He saw this widely varied crowd. And we said the disciples probably felt like what? I'm very uncomfortable. Very uncomfortable. And Jesus pulls them aside and he says, I want you to understand something. All these people that you think you understand, you know what group they fit in. You know what label to put them on there. All those pagans, God's favor is on them. This group over here that you think God's not with them, God is with them. This group over here that you think that you you should actually be making peace with them. This group over here that's your enemy, you should actually show them mercy because that's what the kingdom of God is doing. That's what the kingdom of God looks like, is this pronouncement of blessing on people that we thought were actually unblessed. And that kind of makes sense on some level, because Jesus has just gotten done two paragraphs earlier. We were told he moved into Capernaum, he took up his rabbi's mantle, and he started preaching the good news of a new king and a new kingdom. And now he's trying to communicate to his disciples, his Talmudim, this is what this kingdom looks like. And this idea of God's, the pronouncement of God's favor on all people isn't going to be an idea that Jesus is going to let up on. In fact, it's going to show up all throughout his teaching, which is what's going to work so well with Matthew's agenda of what, Brent? On the mumser. The mumser. There are no mumsers. Remember Matthew's story as a tax collector. He would have been one of these people that people would have said, whoa, God's blessing does not rest on that guy. Like he's out. And Matthew understands the whole message of this new king in a new kingdom is that God's favor rests on people like me too. And so he's going to keep coming back to it. And we're going to see Jesus come back to it throughout the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to see Jesus do it throughout the gospel. But this is going to be a main, main theme of Jesus' teaching, especially as it's found in Matthew's gospel. Blessed. Blessed indeed. All right. Uh, that does it for this episode. Um, you can find all the details you need about the show at BamaDiscipleship.com. We'll just leave it at that. Thanks for joining us on the Bama podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.